Welcome to another episode of the Bipolar Disorder Moment. I'm your host, Alan Cooper. Today on our show, we have the Executive Director for OBAD, an agency I work for as a facilitator. His name is Kai Carvella. Hi, Kai. Hello, Alan. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Good, I'm fine, thanks. I realize I don't say your last name very often. Did I say it correctly? Yeah, Corvallis, great. <laughs> All right, so thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, no problem, thanks so much. Um, so did you maybe want to talk a little bit about what you do as executive for, director for OBAD and maybe you tell us a little bit about OBAD on a more general scale? Oh yeah, okay, so um, maybe I'll start with uh, the organization that I'm the executive director for. So uh, OBET stands for the Organization for Bipolar Affective Disorders Society. It was started in about 1998 as an informal group that met in a building in Calgary. Uh, 14th Street uh, was made up of a bunch of consumers who got together to share their experience. And it was suggested they start by a psychiatrist named Mary Dumka, who found that she, that her patients should actually get peer support to help each other out. So that's where it started. And then um, over time, it went over to a couple other locations and became more formalized. Um, so uh, then it was, ended up getting funding through myself. So I'm the executive director and I have been with OBA for over, 25 years now, which is shocking. Maybe 25 20, years? Wow. Maybe I didn't know 20, that. 23 years. 23 years. Wow. I didn't I've know been, that either. I have been doing, well, maybe 20. I can't remember. <laughs> I've been all with that since the day that I walked in the door. Okay. And so, uh, as the executive director, I've been doing all kinds of things from being a facilitator to being a coordinator to being an admin person, doing public presentations. I've set up numerous committees. Um, uh, I've also worked with academic research groups. And so my kind of work as executive directors run for the most mundane things as writing checks to uh, sitting in conferences with uh, uh, world-renowned uh, researchers. So it's been, uh, it's been an amazing uh, journey so far. So that in a nutshell, I'm not much different than most executive directors except we're a very small group so i don't uh, have as much um i don't know how you call it i don't have that many people that are actually working for me so uh we're definitely a grassroots organization oh we do a lot hey <laughs> uh well you know sometimes i don't feel like i do anything but and i don't do anything but however i do a lot of things at times and it's sort of, uh, I think maybe it fits the idea of having bipolar disorder. You know, either I'm doing a lot or um, I'm, I'm not doing a lot, which is kind of uh, mimics the whole idea of bipolar disorder. But um, as having bipolar disorder, um, I still have symptoms and uh, issues with bipolar disorder, even though I've been well treated for a number of years. Um. Oh, where to go after that? How about we start with peer support? Peer support. Uh, I know that as the I'm most familiar with that since I'm 
one of the facilitators of one of the groups. Okay, um, yeah, so uh, since we're a peer support run agency, so all the people that have ever worked with us pretty much and who have been on our boards, facilitators all have bipolar disorder and all have peer support. So my first introduction with peer support is that I ended up coming to an OBAD meeting getting peer support um, when I was um, clinically depressed and suicidal. And so I found over the years that peer support was what kept me going. I think that peer support is not many different than any other disease category or how people are sharing things. So people, people for good recovery of any kind of illness or any kind of trauma, if they're together with each other, then they find a commonality that um, they don't get with anyone else who doesn't have uh, whatever illness is. So peer support, I think over the last, I'd say over the last 15 years has become way more prevalent, especially in uh, mental health. And uh, so I think now that it's recognized as having a certain amount of validity for helping with illness. And I think if you ask any, any person who comes to our group that they will say that peer support has helped them a lot because they can identify with others and they can share their own stories in a very, uh, not, uh, how do you put it? In an environment where they're, where they're not facing any kind of stigma or facing any judgment. And that's the, one of the things that I think is really great. And so peer support is like, is now a foundation for any, any chronic illness and especially for uh, mental health concerns now. And it's, and it's being recognized as such. And if you ask most clinicians now, they will, say, they will suggest to you without them really suggesting at times that they really think that peer support is a good adjunct to any kind of treatment modality they're doing. If that makes any sense. Oh yeah, it does. But it's funny though, it seems like such a simple concept, right? Yeah, it's an amazingly simple concept, and I don't think that people would recognize how simple it is. Um, from, in essence, friendship is a form of peer support. Family, family relationships are, are sort of like a version of peer support. However, the differentiation between friendships and families, when you're talking about issues like bipolar disorder, is it allows you to not have that kind of conditional relationships so you can actually share what is really going on with you because often people will say oh i'll talk to my sister i'll talk to my brother you know i'll talk to them and because they had such a relationship with you they're not going to listen in the same kind of way and whereas peer support you know you can share things that you would never share with any of your family or friends at least in my opinion if that makes any sense. Um, no, it does. So what do you think is so powerful of it? I don't know if I could ever think about it. And I guess well, it's, I would like our, my listeners to know how dramatic it, an impact it has on people. Because um, we've seen so many people get well because of peer support, it's pretty, it's pretty yeah, amazing I mean, uh, what we see. I, you know, I have, a lot of, uh, I have a lot of answers for that. And you know, I'll just start with my own experience is that when I was first diagnosed with bipolar disorder and I had a psychotic episode in the hospital, I was let out of the hospital and had become uh, clinically depressed for months afterwards and not treated correctly for whatever reason, I'm not gonna go into it. But I found that uh, I saw an advertisement through CMHA saying that uh, 
there is a bipolar group in Calgary where you can get peer support. And I went down there and I was so depressed. And I actually went to support group meeting. I had never met anyone who had bipolar disorder before. I'd only met them in the hospital. I was suicidal. I was, I was just frantic. And I spent my first two hours uh, just completely crying. And that's what it was. But, you know, I walked away from that meeting. I went to go, I found a community that I could actually talk with. And I found that people uh, were non-judgmental. And, and they actually cared about each other. And I found it really strange because I'd never been in an environment with people who actually cared about people they didn't know. And I thought that was an amazing, an amazing experience. And so I just continued going to those meetings um, because I was getting support. So I think that's, the, that's how peer support works. I mean, if you ask most of the people to come to our groups, I mean, they just, you know, they come, whether they're referred through their friends or their clinicians or whatever and they you know if they stick around they find like wow i've got a community here i've got a an extended family and i think that's why uh, peer support is good and i think what's great about peer support is fundamentally as opposed to having families or your friends is that you can just get out of me and said that's it <laughs> no you know i did my two hours with these people and it was really good and um i don't have to i don't have to uh repeat these things over and over and over again with my family or with my partner or whoever. And uh, it, it serves an amazing, uh, amazing role in recovery, I think, from my perspective. Yeah, from my perspective too, it's kind of magical almost. So it's, so you think it's that unique connection and the, the potential to be understood in a way that nobody else in your yeah, it's, it's kind of magical, but then it's also it has a lot of grounding in common sense. That doesn't, common sense being is that you go to a meeting and you're getting support, but there's things that people say to you that no one else understands. Yeah. You're saying like, you know, I'm, I'm having a really rough time and I don't understand what's going on. And I've been like this for a few days and like, uh, I can't explain it to anyone. And then when you come to a support meeting, it goes, Oh yeah, I think you've been, you're having problems with maybe you know maybe you're getting depressed, and you know uh, whatever. So you get advice mm -hmm. that that is real advice and from people who uh, understand. And I think uh, one of the things was I don't know if I'm probably ripping this off, but I had this idea that I think this is my idea. It might be completely wrong, but I had this idea that you say you get uh, ten people in a peer support group. And um, you got 10 people, and, and uh, if they're like older, like we are, unfortunately, but um, okay, so I'm say okay if they're 50 it. years old, 50 years old, okay. okay. So most people get diagnosed probably in their 20s. So you get 25 years of experience from each person in that room. So in, in totality, there's 250 years of experience dealing with mental illness. And I don't care what kind of clinical uh, person you have that's 250 years of people sharing their experiences and their strategies and their their whole experience with it that that uh, a physician or a clinician a psychiatrist will never have time to even go there mm -hmm. so that's why peer support is like it's just an amazing place because uh, you go there for support and then also and it's really interesting you go there and you can get criticism that you wouldn't take from anyone else. 
big thing. I mean, seriously, I, I mean, you can get criticism from someone and say, it's like, you know, friend, I think you should be sleeping. Whereas yeah. it's sometimes if you got that from your partner or whoever, your family member, mm -hmm. you might like take that as a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. Um, no, that's yeah. totally true. I think the big one is too is like if you're high, if your mood is high, often people are say if their family members say, "Hey, you're high," then well, what that's, happens? That's not as that. helpful. I Go think ahead. what happens, Alan, is that once you've been diagnosed, and and uh, and families and your friends are sort of hyper aware of whatever your existence is, like yeah. whether they're good friends or family friends. Some friends are better. But some families are frantic, and whenever they see any kind of deviation from your normal behavior, they're going to instantly go, I think you're getting really high, and the next minute, you know, you're going to be in the hospital again. Whereas yeah. if it came to our group, we'd say, you know, you are getting high, and so maybe you should step back and look at this without, you know, just getting upset and uh, saying, you know, you're ruining our lives. Well, no, you're coming to a meeting, and people are going, yeah, you know, I think you're getting high, and so watch out for these things. So, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing, I think. That is amazing. You did a great, a great job of explaining it. Actually, I didn't, for me, I usually just say it's magic, but <laughs> what? You, I usually just say it's magical and I can't really explain why it's so helpful, but it's, there's it's a lot weird. of elements it's, to, it's, to uh, it. That you it's weird because if, if you meet people who are have bipolar disorder, you, you see it from various kind of uh, levels. You see people that think of it like the recovery is a very spiritual experience. And then you find people who are, who are totally into uh, clinical treatment of bipolar disorder. So in other words, they, they put all their reliance on their psychiatrist. And there you get people who have mixed kind of ideas. But ultimately, peer support is kind of this thing is that you develop or you get multiple strategies of dealing with mental illness. It's kind of these weird pillars that I call that, like, these pillars of good health. It's like you say to people, I go, I haven't been sleeping for two days. Well, if you come to one of our meetings, you'd be going, ah, you know, you better keep a check on that. <laughs> That's not good. Um, because people know, like, mm -hmm. that could be a problem and that's not a problem. And uh, yeah, so I don't know what this original question is. By the way. Yeah, I kind of forgot too, but that was brilliant. <laughs> it was very helpful. Yeah. Uh, so I was thinking. And I'll tell you the reason why I think about these things. Okay. And one of the reasons why I think about these things is because I'm, I'm very aware of people that have come to the groups over many years, but I have told this to people who have not had the lived experience of mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to explain what, what these groups are about and trying to put it in the context of their own lives. So that's the reason why I, oh. I do things. So I've spent a lot of time educating people who, who have nothing to do with mental illness, but are sitting on committees and meeting people in different uh, things. And they go, well, what, what, what does bipolar disorder mean? And so, you know, you're, it's, that's, the, that's the reason why I keep thinking about it at times. Because I need to I try to dispel the myth of, of mental illness as best as I can over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if I've been successful, but I think sometimes I. Yeah. What do you mean by that? You trying to dispel the myth of mental illness? Well, I think I think uh, people have a lot of myths about, especially about chronic mental illness, is that 
they they believe it's a flaw. Mm-hmm. They believe it's a fundamental character flaw, and they mm-hmm. believe okay, it's connected to all all kinds of things like, you know, you went crazy because you're you know you you lost your cat in the street or you know uh you you know you got crazy because you're using drugs or alcohol or mm-hmm. but they don't realize that it's a chronic illness. Yeah, and a chronic illness is is it is a different thing than from having a let's put it this way a shitty personality you know yeah. like somehow it's it's it, people think that it's uh personality driven yeah. for mental like a lot of people do yeah and and a lot of people don't have any understanding but i remember one time someone was asking me for uh for an interview somewhere and now i'm losing my uh, train of thought here but they asked me, what, what, what do you think about how a mental illness has been presented to the, to the public? And I said, well, you know, it's only really come out in the last few years, a real understanding of mental illness or mental health. I said, and, and the first veneer of it, like I call it the breaking of the veneer of the class, was when people recognized that depression was a serious mental illness that had physical uh, components to it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is not, and this is not new. I mean, psychiatry is is uh, still new. I mean, it's yeah. from the fifties, and the treatment of uh, of even normal depression, what we call clinical depression, with uh, has it's been only since nineteen ninety for what we what some of us are taking, like Prozac was in nineteen ninety one. So you know, we're in this infancy, and I'm always trying to tell people who don't go. That there's a biological basis for it, essentially, and um, we need to treat it as a chronic illness, and it and it should be seen as like, oh, that person is completely uh, off the off the rails, you know, and um, plus yeah, also the and plus also the thing is that pop culture has has created a, a uh, sort of milieu of glorifying and and making. Bipolar oh, and mental illness is something like really remarkable, when in reality it's just generally pretty awful. Yeah, from my perspective. Uh, yeah, me too. I've tried to do a lot of writing because I would like people to understand that it's a physical illness too. I think that's yeah, definitely for sure. Thing. I mean, uh, I I think you know I've been I've been treated for. Uh, since I was 36 or whatever, I can't remember now, and that's over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that I have physical, uh, you know, symptoms even now after being treated. You know, yeah, I, we all I have do. no I explanation. Think... I have no explanation at times. You know, if somebody goes, you know, wow, you haven't been feeling that well, and then I'm going, well, and they go, do you have the flu? I go, no. No, I just feel uh, mentally drained, and I I just can't function. Yeah, and some people go, "Oh wow, that's really strange." And you go, "No, it's, it's a part of the package here." I was going to ask you about hypomania. Is hypomania a, a chronic symptom for you? I don't oh, write hypomania. very much. I don't uh, write very much about it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, hypomania is a weird thing, and I think it's very prevalent among people with bipolar disorder. It's just, uh, you know, and I think it's probably the first recognition, especially by friends and family, that there's something something going on. Because, like, yeah. um, 
you know, I've had I've had probably bipolar disorder my whole life, and I, and there's you know certain behaviors that have occurred over time that have definitely been hypomanic. So, um, you know, people with who are, have hypomanic symptoms will you know have uh, grandiose thinking. They'll have high energy levels. That they won't sleep correctly. They'll be like the they'll be like the the life of the party. Like those are the people you see in places that are you know, incredible sort of, you know, drive for all kinds of things. And I think there's a biological component of it. And I just thought about this the other day, is that there's certain things that people, hypersexuality, excessive spending, kind of like uh, flights of fancy for ideas and things like that. So hypomania is, is kind of the good part of bipolar disorder. However, it does cause chaos for yourself and then for your friends and families, because Sometimes there's things that come over, like back at you, like, you know, I'm totally broke and, uh, you know, I cheated on my partner and, um, you know, I'm just you know, like, I haven't slept and, and I'm, I'm going to get fired from my job. Um, and I don't think that hypomania, like lots of people come, you know, you meet lots of people bipolar who goes, oh, I miss my hypomania. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, for sure you miss your hypomania. And, you know, uh, being happy and, and being joyful and having a good thing is a good thing. However, when you have bipolar disorder, it's not necessarily a good thing because it lasts. It doesn't, it's not like, oh, it's my birthday. No, it's not only your birthday. It's like two weeks of your birthday. And, and, that's, and that's just too much. Mm -hmm. And so um, the difference, we always see in the groups and thing is that what's the differentiation between mania and hypomania well it's everything i just described however it's amplified even more and then what happens is becomes like into incredible paranoia and delusional thinking and then also goes into psychosis and that's what uh yeah like i was thinking the other week i go where's that point like you come to your your hypomanic and you come to that cliff the edge of that cliff and there's no going back. Well, I've been there, and I can tell you, I have no idea where that cliff was. Uh, yeah, well, that's the that's the issue here. I mean, you can you don't you don't see the cliff, but it's there. So, do you think if people are are uh, hypomanic, sometimes they're they're walking a bit close to the cliff and they don't know? When you're a facilitator, that's a little hard. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's a really hard thing. Uh, I mean, if you ask people who, are, who have, quote, bipolar one disorder, which means that they had a manic uh, episode that caused a lot of problems. Um, I have bipolar know. one. They'll know. But the people who have bipolar two, which they've had periods of hypomania, but they've had lots of depression, they kind of think, wow, it's not that bad. You know, it's like, uh, it's pretty good. You know, it's like, uh, I can, you know, you know, I, I'm going, it's, you know, the typical example is like a single person goes like, oh yeah, you know, uh, you know, I've got, uh, I've got two or three different boyfriends or girlfriends and they just think it's really great. Yeah. But you know what, when, when it gets too out of control, it just, you know, devastates your life. And then you just, it's, it's not a good thing. And I mean, hypomania in essence is, is a normal part of life, but when it becomes out of control and it doesn't, there's no brakes put on, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. But it can't, like, 
this is tough. I almost don't want to say this, but sometimes people have positive things happen in their life because they're hypomanic. Well, yes. I, well, I mean, for sure. I mean, because what, if you're in, if you're in a state that you're feeling really great and you're feeling really high, your creativity levels will go up for sure. And your ability to absorb information will go up for sure. Um, you know, you can do things cause you have much more energy levels. Um, you don't have as many inhibitions. So in other words, you're going to do something without having that natural kind of thing. Like I need to stop. So when you're hypomanic, you go, Oh yeah, you know, I'm just going to keep pushing through. So like, for instance, if, if you're writing or if you're uh, a creative person, um, that's going to, that's going to help because it propels you to another level. But uh, the problem is, is you can't stay in a hypomanic state forever. And, and that's just, you know, I mean, you just have to talk to people with bipolar disorder and they, they can tell you uh, what happens in hypomania. Um, and that's, it's a good thing. I, I just think that uh, people don't understand what it's like to go in a manic episode and, you know, just don't really understand what hypomanic can lead to. So you're an artist, right? So yeah. have you experienced that positive aspect? Oh, yeah. 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 But, you know, essentially when I was younger, it was, it, you know, because the nature of bipolar disorder, what they say is a progressive illness. It gets episodes get closer together and they get more intense amplified. But when I was younger, you know, it's just that, you know, I could, I could go for a long time and, and make, make art and I didn't have any fear about it. And, I couldn't care less what the judgment of, of anybody's opinion. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was really great because it's sort of liberating in a sense. And mm -hmm. it, it stops when you're in that state, it stops self-censure being censoring yourself. It, it just, it makes it like, okay, I'm just going to do this. It's going to be really great. So yeah, it was, it was fantastic. I mean, the trick now for me is that um, I don't have that, that I have to push through it. Like I don't have those long periods of creativity mm -hmm. um, and I just, I can't, I can't sustain it for a while. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, and I think it's that, you know, here, here's the thing is that, okay, think of yourself when you're 50, 55 and how you can do things in your life. Like, you know, play sports, do blah, 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 compared to when you're in your twenties and, and you had lots of energy and you had lots of, relationships with people and you had a big community, you know, there's a difference. There's a definite difference. So when you're younger, for sure, hypomania and those things that, you know, can be pretty helpful. Um, yeah. I, th I think I almost want to say like, if you're 20, this is helpful, but there's a point where it's, when you get older, it's not exactly, it changes, okay. right? Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I heard this thing, like, I don't know what it was that said a lot of people who have been super creative uh, who have a mental illness, quite often, they their, their big part of their careers ended when they were about 28 or 30. They did all that good stuff when they were really younger. And I, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but if, if you historically looked at something like creative people who had bipolar disorder, I mean, there's lots of people that made work when they were younger. And then when they got older, they had longer periods of depression and shorter periods of hypomania to make work. 
so there there's an issue to it like that and then if you like from a, here's from a pop culture kind of rock and roll thing so you get you get this club 27 group and the club 27 groups was uh jimmy hendrix and it was uh jim morrison and uh uh it was amy winehouse and it was janice joplin and uh you know there's there's tons of them and kurt cobain but if you look at every every one of those people there is that all of them had bipolar disorder i mean you know or a mood disorder i mean we can't necessarily diagnose them but those people were like driven like driven and they also had periods of depression and they also had they had uh untreated mental illness so um there you go. That's an example of that, that intense 20s where things were good and then ended up poorly. So I, I don't know why I'm bringing that story up. Maybe I want to be in Club 27, but not really. Um, you we're know, like, about, uh, what's that? We were talking about when you're younger, the creativity and mental Yeah, yeah, and the younger. I mean, you know, you know, the thing is that you, you see people, you know, you, if you, there's all kinds of literature that's been done on the connection of bipolar disorder with creative people. I'm not saying that uh, most bipolar people are creative, but if you look at them, they used to, someone was said to me, we're going to do an audit of someone's creative life, right? You know, you look at writers, you know, you look at poets and, and all kinds of creative people, but you know, they've done studies that said like 40% of poets uh, from the 19th century had some form of mood disorder. However, they usually had a short, short creative life. Or they had periods that they made a lot of work and then they spent years not doing work. So, you know, there's a kind of hmm. thing that goes on with creativity. And, and uh, So now that you're treated, there's a lot of people who are afraid that they'll lose their creativity when they receive treatment for bipolar disorder. Can you make any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, there's, I think there's a lot of components here. I think that people who are treated with bipolar disorder and they don't get the right uh, uh, relationship with their clinicians is that they can be over medicated and, and dulled mm -hmm. and they just, they just can't push it over. And then there's lots of people who, who have been, you know, addicted to the highs of making work when they're creative, um, have to have change their, how they work completely. So in other words, they, they need to know that they need to back off at times. And then sometimes they have to push their creativity. So in other words, like for myself and some uh, lots of other people I knew who were artists um, would say that, um, you know, I was treated, but I still, I still can make the same work. It's just a different way of working. In other words, you have to generate much more energy than you did before. If that makes okay. any sense. Yeah. So you, you, you just you just have to generate this energy like you know i've got my studio and and i go oh you know i can't generate any energy and and it's just like but i have to push myself if i want to do anything i gotta push myself uh much harder than i ever did before so how do you but, generate that energy well you pick it up there's there's strategies i mean like i, I I have I have a problem every day with my mental illness. I don't really share that with people. Yeah. But how do I do it? Now what I do is um, I try to go in there and I don't do anything. Like I sit there and listen to music and invariably something will happen. 
Um, <laughs> really? And I know that if I sit, I, if I sit in my house and I don't do anything, nothing's going to get done. In fact, I'm going to get more depressed that I'm not doing it. And I'm talking about depression as situational depression. So okay. it's like, okay, I, I got to generate something else. And, and I think that's uh, for lots of people like uh, people who are like musicians, right? They won't pick up an instrument, but somehow if they just sit in a room and they decide to do something, like to play something, next minute they'll, you know, they'll be doing something. And uh, it's like, okay, it's like you're a writer, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's there's two there's two things that that happen that are similar to being a painter. When you're a writer, it's that it's that blank piece of paper. Mm-hmm. When when you're a painter, it's that blank canvas and it's only going to happen if you put something down <laughs> you know it's whether you put that first first amount of paint down or that first word and and you have to move from from that place of not being there to the place where you're actually involved with it um and and also you know i've known people who have uh, had bipolar disorder who are, have been playwrights and writers, and then they, that's what they said. They, you know, they would have to generate a bunch of tricks to get them going. So, I don't think I don't think this is really different than a person that doesn't have mental illness. I just think it's way harder push. Like you have to push way harder. Like compared to when you're used to being hypomanic to create work. Yeah, you just don't have that kind of you know uh, kind of like natural like buzzy feeling that you know i'm gonna go make something you know is the experience of making the work different as well um well yeah i think i think because i've done all kinds of things i think what it is before was this kind of at times sort of chaotic rush to do something and something would come out but now it's kind of like it's more distilled or it's, it's, it's more measured in the process of doing it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more kind of, in essence, kind of a criticality of it. This is only when you're well, I'm not talking about when you're depressed because you're depressed, nothing's going to go down, you know? Oh, okay. And, and there's a lot of bullshit about like, Oh, sorry for that. But oh, there, cool. there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ridiculous notions that, you know, you can't, you know, you can make poetry when you're depressed or, you know, you need to be tortured. That is just the, the biggest myth that's ever been presented. Um, and, and I think it's just that, so now it's, now it's an issue of like, okay, I got to push through. I get it. It's going to be harder. Um, I'm much more critical about what I'm doing. Um, I just get more serious, I guess, in a way. I don't know. That's interesting. So you just sit in front in the studio mm-hmm. and, so, and something happens. Yeah. Well, the way I make work, I mean, I'm like, I'm a pretty much abstract painter. So it's sometimes it's uh, definitely mood related. So, you know, I need to push it. I need to push it. So, you know, like I listen to lots of music too in there and I just, you know, sit there and, you just got, you got to, you got to be in a, you know, when you're mentally ill, you can sit in a corner of your room and just flip out and just sit there in this kind of 
terrible sort of introspective uh, musing and then you just need to get out of there and you got to go and, and push it even more by trying to do something positive. And, uh, is it like for me, writing is when I do creative writing, mm -hmm. it, it surprises me what I create. Because sometimes it's like how you're saying you look at your, your canvas and you don't know something's going to happen, but you don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what it is. And then I write something I had no idea that was even existed in my brain. Well, that, see, this is the beauty of it, right? This is, this is the, the fabulous thing about doing creative things. And uh, what you've got to do is that you vert, it's like kind of like magic. It's like mm -hmm. you're taking disparate people's information and you're creating something new. And it's like, for instance, in, in and this goes also back to the worst part of mania mm -hmm. is that as opposed to now when you, 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 you uh, construct those kind of ideas and those words together and, and you can sort of massage it, people of mania have all those great little ideas, but none of it makes sense. After a while. <laughs> none of it makes sense. So it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, I'm going to write a story when I'm a manic, but it's going to go in 18 directions. Yeah. And uh, it's going to go nowhere. And that's kind of like making uh, art as well. It's like, uh, I have all these ideas, but it's just going to turn out to be a big mm -hmm. potential mess. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, that was interesting. <laughs> that organically <laughs> happened. That wasn't on my list of questions, but that was, that was cool. Yeah. Well, because, it, I mean, because... The, the question is, is that when you, when you're talking to other bipolar people who have, who, who have those creative things in it, you know, you have a different kind of conversation. Like, it's oh, just, because we both have bipolar disorder and we're creative. Yeah. I think it's completely different than having, uh, having conversations with people who don't, who are creative, who don't have bipolar disorder. Because we face some really weird things at times. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Hmm. You know, so I was thinking maybe we can stop here and we'll come back another time. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, talk a bit more. Would that yeah, work for you? Um, I'd be happy to do it. I mean... That was uh, great. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think we got off track, but... No, no, I like the off track that went. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was good. Yeah, well, what's great wasn't, you know, it wasn't too sad. <laughs> well, the next thing I was going to bring up was potentially sad, but I thought, you know what? Th this was I, I'd be more than happy to talk about things that are sad. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can you come know? back and do, some, do a sad one. Yeah. Maybe I can call this the creativity one that just organically happened. Yeah, okay. Sure. Is that cool? Yeah, that's good with me. Do you have any, I always ask my guests if they have any last bit of wisdom or comments for, for the universe? Uh, yeah, I'm always in this kind of thing. Um, well, this is really interesting. And this goes back to peer support. And this is about doing it, having a community. If you want to get better with mental illness, you have to create some kind of community. And I was just uh, I was just at Shoppers Drug Mart today, and I was getting part of my prescription, and I got my prescription 
from this uh, woman whose name Rachel, but I shouldn't have gave her name out. But anyway, maybe that's not her name. Anyway, um, she was the first person I ever got medication from. Oh, wow. Like that was the first time. And you know, every time I see her and I get my prescri prescription, it makes me feel good because somehow I think she's still taking care of me. So it's weird. She's kind of like a strange kind of peer, but I think it's weird because she's a part of my sort of community and she's probably helped me as much as some, yeah. some psychiatrists on it. So that's my piece of wisdom is to try for people to try to build a community mm -hmm. of people that understand each other and not to do it alone. Cause to try to, to try to do this kind of experience of mental illness alone is just, is a dark place. And, and I, I've very rarely seen anyone who's, you know, had a satisfying life or remotely satisfying life. So that's my thing. Peer support, make yourself a community and make yourself a community that's beyond your family. Cause sometimes your family is just not gonna, it's not gonna be enough. Mm -hmm. Well said, very well said. Yeah, so we'll have you on the show again. If that's okay. Yeah, for sure. We'll see what other... Uh, It'll be part two. Part two. Yeah, that sounds good. All right, well, part thank you very much for being on the show. And thank you to all no my problem, listeners. Alan. This has been another Bipolar Disorder Moment. <laughs>